0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome today to the LSE and um, for this evening's event. My name is Mustafa Khanbay. I'm founder and CEO of Technology Consultancy Seamlessly and um, also an alumni and governor of the LSE. It's a great honor for me to welcome Deborah Peripiccioni today. And uh, I'm sure you're uh, aware, Deborah is a, a seasoned entrepreneur and author of the best selling novel Secrets of Silicon Valley which is here to talk to us today. Um, we're looking to get an insight of what makes the success of Silicon Valley ecosystem and the innovation culture that uh, could and should be applied to the rest of the world. Um, the format of the event will be 45 minutes of Q&A, and well, 45 minutes of a discussion between myself and, and Deborah, and then 45 minutes of Q&A, where we'll ask you to um, uh, raise your thoughts from the, from the, from the session. Um, before we start, may I ask anybody who's on Twitter that uh, the hashtag for the event is LSEEV. And the session will also be recorded and a podcast may be available afterwards. Excellent. Okay. So, to kick us off, Deborah, um, what is the Silicon Valley ecosystem and what makes it so unique?
1: So just to take you a step back, first of all, thank you so much for having me. It's an absolute honor to be here. I uh, lived in London many two years ago, um, but it's, it's great to be back. And uh, I had lived in Washington, D.C. For, for 18 years and did the world of national politics and national media and had worked on Capitol Hill and then our White House and then fell into media um, as well. And actually wrote my first book during that time, which was more a political back-and-forth with a, a woman by the name of Dr. Julia Malveaux. So it was very much indoctrinated into this culture of you withhold information and you don't share. And, you know, anybody living in London, you can certainly appreciate politics um, and, of course, being here at LSE. but. You know, it was very much of be careful on your way up, because you never know who's going to knock your way down. And the association was very much based on your political party and where you were on a specific issue. And there was very little creativity in the process and very, very little information sharing. In fact, you really used information in a way that you could shoot down your enemy at a time when your enemy was most vulnerable. So that was sort of my introduction to Silicon Valley on um, really being deeply indoctrinated into this culture, and uh, you know, for for transparency, we, my husband and I, had moved to Silicon Valley for his job. So it really, I felt like I was leaving this environment that was so familiar for this land completely of the unknown. And at the time. Uh, you know, Google was starting to really come and take shape. It was certainly not the company that it is today. You know, there was lots of conversation about Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook. But you would just kind of drive around Silicon Valley and see these massive campuses, but all very colorful and creative. And I thought, who in the world can take this place so seriously? Because it was so different from the traditions of Washington and the hierarchy of Washington. And so, you know, my husband and I was it was quite a daunting transition because it was so different from anything we had ever known before. And when we took a step back and you realize you've got to figure out how you fit into this economy, I realized that it was completely foreign from anything I had known and that there really was this ecosystem that existed there. And it took me a while to think about it in, you know, year after year even though I was already on this entrepreneurial path, what made this place so unbelievably unique, um, which we'll talk about tonight.
0: And how do you feel business is conducted differently? So you, you mentioned in Washington a lot of sheltering, a lot of keeping secrets, and a very different vibe on the West Coast. How do you think businesses conduct differently, which still that? not
1: Yeah, and this is just an anomaly to Silicon Valley. It is incredibly open, and you have to get used to information sharing. And often you're sharing information with your direct competitors, because those direct competitors can help validate or justify an idea you have. They can profitize your platform or your product. Um, But for me, you know, it was very odd that, I mean, we still sign non-disclosure agreements there, but it was very odd that people were so open about what they were working on, what that next technology was. Whether there was a strategy behind it or not is a different story. But there was such a culture of realizing that it is all about ideas, and you are investing either in your own ideas or other people's ideas. And a unique component in Washington, and I think very much here in in London as well, you know, there's sort of a, you pay your dues, you know, there is this hierarchy, there is this place you aspire to get to. Well, Silicon Valley doesn't care. They don't care about your age. They don't care about your gender. They don't care about the color of your skin. They don't care about the dialect of your voice. It's very much just based on value and what you can bring to the table. So you can be Mark Zuckerberg, 23 years old, and someone's going to invest millions and millions of dollars in you because the perception is you're smart and what you're creating is growing really quickly.
0: Do you think that's a perception on what they're trying to is ch- They're trying to be disruptive and... Is there value being created or is it just trying to disrupt and, and change change, change the way we do life? So it's a case of where everybody's going to benefit as it's an altruistic way of, of doing business. Do you think that's what's happening?
1: Not- well, first of all, Silicon Valley is a bubble-based economy. So what happened, uh, you know, and I don't want to claim to be an expert in what was going on in Europe specifically, but I can certainly speak about the economy in the United States. So what the entire country was experiencing, Silicon Valley was immune from, um, it's certainly uh, cut back, you know, off corporate profitability. You know, people corporations were holding on to their cash. Uh, we were certainly having hiring freezes, but we by no means experienced what the rest of the country uh, was going through. And it is based, it's a bubble-based economy. So what Silicon Valley does is it creates sort of a trend, which I address in my book. I call them the cycle of innovations. And you know, it can be each decade that there's new innovations that come about. They let the rest of the world adopt them, and then they move on. It's kind of like a trampoline. They move on to that next thing. And so uh, in that respect, it's the question is always going to be about value creation rather than a get-rich-quick, and that's, that's a big debate going on for us right now because a lot of the venture capitalists have huge pressure on them to have a quick ROI. You know, it used to be that you can invest in R&D and you can invest in technology and expect a return seven to ten years out. With Facebook and some of these other social media companies that grew so quickly, you know, the pressure is really on the, the, the limited partners of venture capital firms are now putting tremendous partner pressure on the general partners to have these quick turnarounds, you know, this quick return on investment. So that's the question of whether... We're going down a path of value creation or really true disruptive technologies.
0: And and do you think that that ethos starts? I mean, Stanford has a big part to play, as you mentioned. So how much do you think Stanford contributes to that? And and how does it operate differently? I mean, does it instill it in from from day one when you start?
1: So I realized after going on book tour just in the United States, I could probably teach an entire class on Stanford. Um, I went to Georgetown and and graduated in uh, economics and international affairs. And there is nothing quite like Stanford. I mean, first of all, this dates back to when the university was founded in the late uh, 19th century, where science was the vanguard. Leland Stanford felt that the East Coast universities back in the States were not really focusing on science, and science is what created direct usefulness in life. The other thing that he did when he created the university was that students and professors and faculty were all going to have direct connectivity to the surrounding community. Not that it was that big back then, but he felt that there had to be an understanding of what business needs were. Rather than just looking through the lenses of academics, there had to be this deep connection. So Stanford professors and and other administrative faculty were really the first university that was allowed to consult to industry. And a lot of people on Stanford's campus will tell you that was an enormous distinction. I mean, this was not going on at Harvard and MIT and other places. Um, And, you know, what has been mind-boggling to me about Stanford is not just sort of the future of science and technology and how far ahead of the curve that they are. Uh, Design thinking, as we were talking, is also a big interdisciplinary piece, meaning that you can take a traditional engineering path or a traditional humanities path, but there's a lot of interdisciplinary study with other subjects on top of that. Um, But what's most remarkable is how Stanford reaches out to that next generation as we're all struggling in the United States with our K-12 education and, and realizing that we're not doing a great job, we're not making a lot of adjustments to really prepare kids for the 21st century economy. Stanford's almost taking a lot of these surrounding kids in, and I write about a competitive advantage of being raised there, and getting them immersed into what the future of technology and science and engineering looks like.
0: So many other economies, or other universities, are are trying to embrace that innovation and create that, that culture. What factors do you think that could play on that? That Silicon Valley makes so adept that they're so adept with that we could bring in here to, to the UK or to the LSE or you know on the East Coast that would instill that? that uh, well,
1: uh, Harvard just uh, established. They noticed that their endowment was not growing, and, and Stanford does have the largest endowment, at least of of the U.S. Uh, universities, but. Harvard realized that they needed to be more Silicon Valley-esque, and they built an innovation lab. And um, provided a, a place for creativity and incubators, and are hoping that that's going to make a difference overall in terms of just helping them kind of really get out. you know, And understanding that really, you don't have to replicate Silicon Valley exactly, but if what's working for you is working, then continue down the path. But I think the rest of the U.S. economy realized it was not working for them. And they really needed to think about entrepreneurship as a true way of the future, because we're certainly struggling in our country, you know, still growing at a, at a very slow pace, but realizing that there is just tremendous shifts going on across the board more and more jobs are going to be lost. And so we've got to not only transfer, but prepare those next generations for what the economy will be.
0: I I think uh, here at the LSE, we're seeing a shift as well from more and more graduates and students wanting to get into entrepreneurial activity, tech activity, versus the typical management and and banking role. So it will be interesting to see how the initiatives evolve here as well.
1: Yes, absolutely.
0: Um, So if somebody wants to succeed in Silicon Valley or have the same amount of success as, uh, you know, as you would have achieved in Silicon Valley. How would you go about doing that? What, what type of ca- ca- characteristics would you need to start developing?
1: Well, first of all, Silicon Valley is incredibly relationship driven. And th- it took me you know, several years to con- figure this out that uh, you know, my co-founder and I um, resisted taking in venture capital initially just because we thought we'll go You know, raise angel funding, we raised $5 million, but what we realize later on is that venture capitalist, and that law firm, and that accounting firm, and that banker can very much be your partners. And because it's so relationship driven, your product or your platform may not necessarily be the most viable or the best product that is potentially on the market. But that those relationships really drive that commercial value and that commercial of that product. Um, so if I had to do it all over again, I would absolutely go the venture capital route. Some people have, you know, a different view about that. But you have a better opportunity of getting things to market a lot quicker. And this is goes to your initial question is really what is that ecosystem? And that ecosystem is all those service providers That stand on the sidelines, who really act as your cheerleaders, that really kind of take that idea and pick up the phone. You know, you may start with the law firm, but the law firm is then gonna call Kleiner Perkins, the venture capital firm. Kleiner Perkins is then gonna call KPMG, you know, the accounting firm. And things are done very, very different, even among our traditional accounting and, and banking solutions, because there's the recognition that someone may be the next Google. You know, one out of 10 of your clients may be the next Google, and you never know who that's going to be. So we're not going to charge you normal rates that we would charge you in any other city um, throughout the country, but we're going to recognize that this could be an equity relationship, it could be partial payment and equity, but do everything possible to make that entrepreneur successful in the process and really figure out what that partnership needs to look like. And that's the secret of what that ecosystem is about.
0: And the trust element there? I mean, I think a lot of people are hesitant because of sharing and, and the, what will happen with their idea or, or how much will, you know, will it cost them in equity or, or in other ways. So, uh...
1: Yeah, it's, it is definitely something when you're entrenched in other spheres of influence, I mean, you know, whether it's the financial industry or whatever... You know, it is. I mean, this is this is really the unique component to Silicon Valley, that trust factor. I mean, there is just this um, embedded amount of trust that people may share your ideas, because venture capitalists do not sign NDAs, um, but I've never heard a story where someone felt somebody's idea was stolen. You know, it's usually you're sharing it to enhance um, your idea, to be able to bounce your ideas off people, and then hopefully have connections of, you know, a cadre of individuals who are gonna help you get to commercialization.
0: And, and do, you think, do you think that can be replicated or does it need to be replicated or does it need to sit, sit in the West and everyone needs to tap into that through the, the network of VCs around the world?
1: I think it's a much better way to get things commercialized. But the, the question is, uh, I gave my first talk on Capitol Hill when, I, when my book came out and, you know, they kind of looked at me like, with deer in the headlights, how could you, you know, they can't imagine, New York, Wall Street can't imagine being able to share things in an open and trusting and collaborative way. And, in fact, I just got another book deal, which I'll be writing about risk as a management tool, having nothing to do with financial management. And I'll be talking about risk in terms of collaboration and, and lots of other management features Um, Because, again, nobody does Silicon Valley better than risk, but that doesn't mean there's great stories out there beyond Silicon Valley. But it really comes down to people. You know, and the uh, former chairman of of Google um, will say that it comes down to the weather in Silicon Valley because when you're living in these blue skies every day and you're energized and you're feeling the productivity and the lifestyle is so focused on the outdoors, and then you've got a company like Google who recognizes we're going to adopt that outdoor lifestyle, and we're going to bring it into the workplace. That's extraordinary. I think everybody, you know, if you have to see the internship, I know the movie just came here, um, just to get a sense of what it's like to work at Google, what what they provide, and you know, we just have to think very differently in terms of productivity. Is not based on time. Productivity is not based on someone sitting in a cubicle from nine to five but what does it mean to provide the most creative environment that you possibly can for each individual on your team? You know, Marissa Mayer, who is now the CEO of Yahoo, when she was at Google and led a, a, you know, couple thousand member team, used to talk about she would go to all her senior executives and say, what is your rhythm? You know, meaning what is going to work best for you? And one woman responded, well, You know, I need to be at my daughter's soccer game every Wednesday night at 4 o'clock. And by the way, I'd like not to come back to the office after because I'd like to have dinner with my family. And she was, like, done. And she went through her entire executive team, and each one had a story of what was going to work for them that gave them more balance in their life, made them feel more whole, and then mandated that her executive team then go down to their staff and do the same thing. And I think we just have to think about things very, very differently, because we all struggle with, with working and trying to keep up our families. And then, you know, since 2008, the financial crisis, there's that much more financial strain on all of us. Um, and, you know, now's really the greatest time ever to be able to take these risks.
0: i have heard about Silicon Roundabout. I guess yes. all we need is a bit of sunshine and we can reach heights <laughs> Excellent. Okay, so, um, and I guess finally, why was it so important for you to, to write about the secrets of Silicon Valley and, and capture the essence?
1: Because I thought things were so messed up, you know, at least from my having lived on the East Coast. And, uh, you know, I was one of those people that when I was in the traditional workforce, I never understood if I got done with my job at four o'clock why I had to sit there till six o'clock to show FaceTime. And it wasn't just so much Capitol Hill or the White House, but other places I had worked with in Washington. And, you know, the badge of honor in a given week was how many all-nighters you pulled. And it just, you know, it it doesn't make sense if you think of it in the scheme of things, particularly as if you're planning to have a family. And um, it just seemed to me that if I did my best work at 3 a.m. or if I did my best work in the morning, why shouldn't I have that flexibility to be able to do that? And so I just thought... You know, in some respects, people said, "Well, it's been written a lot." It, you know, that there certainly was books on HP and Google and the Apple way and Steve Jobs, and but there wasn't this comprehensive. If you've never been to Silicon Valley, what would you need to know? And that was what you know. My editor and I decided was that kind of that unique value proposition in that respect. Excellent.
0: Thank you. Sure. Um, I think uh, good time for us to open up the floor to some questions. Um, if we can, uh, there's a couple of roving mics going around. The thing what we'll do is we'll capture questions in sets of three and um, so we can tackle them in order. Any any, any questions from the crowd? One over there. Take one there and two over there. Do you want to stand up, uh, uh, say your name and affiliation and... Uh,
2: Uh, Hi, um, I'm Josh Perry from uh, University College of London. Um, I was just wondering, what do you think is the best way to approach managers when you have a creative idea? And what kind of um, processes would you have to go through in order to kind of get your organisation that you work for to replicate the success of Silicon Valley?
0: Okay, so getting managers and setting up the workforce to succeed as it does in Silicon Valley. I think gentlemen uh, gentleman in the white, white pilot there as well.
3: Question? Uh, are we queuing them up? Yeah, we'll do okay. three and then we'll queue them up, yeah. Um, hi, I'm David Tuck. I'm a, um, um, a technology entrepreneur. Um, I just wondered, if you were completely sort of mobile, you know, location kind of um, optional, where would London rank um, in terms of kind of locations to start a business? across the whole globe. Okay, great.
0: I think we over that.
2: Uh, yeah, thank you. I mean, London also prides itself to be, I a mean, city, city of London, a place for enterprise. Um, if a Londoner, I mean, the one who's work, been working at the city, goes to Silicon Valley, what will be his, what you call, uh, um, what surprises he might, might, what you call, come across?
0: No? So can you just repeat the question?
2: Well, I said London also prizes itself, prizes in, in, in enterprise, City of London, that is. And uh, if a city of Londoner goes to, to what you call the Silicon Valley, what surprises it holds for, for him? No? Do you
1: have that?
0: Yeah, I think. Okay. So, okay, so we've got three, so... Okay,
1: to... absolutely. So to to the question about the, the managers and workforce, what kind of industry and business? Okay, okay. So um, maybe I needed more pictures in my book, but in my book, I have... Uh, there's a company called Box. It's It's in the cloud sort of space, and... They have a, a slide, a winding slide, when you walk into their, their um, entryway. And, you know, there, there's a famous design firm right near Stanford called IDEO. And it's, it's based, in, and if anybody doesn't know the IDEO story, they, they started with, uh, it was really founded, for the most part, David Kelly was working with Steve Jobs on the first Apple, and he created the, the first mouse for the, the Lisa one, which was the first Apple, and then kind of created all sorts of product developments from the deodorant stick to the, the stand-up toothpaste, and they're, they're all over the place these days. They're, they're a huge, huge global firm. And if you walk into the firm, um, there is unbelievable playfulness. And David Kelly talks about getting back to your inner child. Because that's where creativity comes in. And so the most critical element, I think, of Silicon Valley is that uh, everybody feels like that they're valued, that they're a part of the process from the janitors to the administration staff all the way up to the CEO. And when you get everybody's input and there's that constant communication, and this is done among very, very big companies such as Cisco, um, who continues to collaborate in a big way. And that's, that's a whole other issue. But John Chambers, the CEO of Cisco, will continue to have internal councils where everybody feels that they have a voice. And it's not just your senior management, it's across the board. And when you have that level of input and people feel valued, it's amazing the productivity that will come back. And that productivity, again, is not based on time. Um, I mean, you're, the, the traffic in London, has gotten so far worse over the years. I mean, I really am in London, you know, at least every couple years, and it's just gotten worse and worse. If you're not a business that has to conduct itself within 8.30 to 6, perhaps you want to alter and scatter hours, and and you will have, with people being less stressed, greater creativity and greater involvement. And, uh, you know, the benefits are a whole other level. I, I mean, I have not seen the type of employee benefits anywhere, like I've seen at at Google. And and I don't know if you all are familiar, but, you know, you can do everything you can possibly need to do on Google's campus. There's free food. You can get your haircut. You can go to the doctor. You can get your oil changed. You can plan your kid's birthday party. You can have someone run out and pick up your dry cleaning for you. Now, part of the goal is to keep people there, but when you're not thinking about all those other tasks that sort of bog you down on a daily basis, you really are free to do things. And then the other point, I mean, this is just a a huge question, is um, there's the 20% rule at Google that others are adopting throughout Silicon Valley where you get to do any person's job or your own particular passion one day a week because they feel that that will help create innovation overall. Um, and then, you know, there's just a whole range. I mean, Netflix has adopted an unlimited vacation time policy. There's, there's unlimited vacation. Now other companies are now following suit as well. And it's just really how do you motivate people based on valuing them? Does that answer your question or at least begin? Um, on the, the question on London and starting with business, I don't want to claim that I'm, I'm an expert on – the only thing I did look at is globally – where the U.S. fell in comparison to other companies and countries in terms of getting a business up and running. I've certainly been studying what's been going on in Dublin more so. Um, But, you know, I looked at Silicon Roundabout, and then I heard it became Tech City, and then Google's having a bigger presence here. And I think the only thing I would say is it takes time. You know, Silicon Valley's been been around for as, as small as it still is. It still has been around. It really didn't take shape until the 1950s, with the semiconductor industry. And so, you know, it's been evolving ever since, but it was a group of people that had absolute disdain for East Coast hierarchy and said, we're going to do things a better way. We're going to treat people like family. And guess what? When you move on to other companies, you're going to take this culture and you're going to take it with you. So it's setting some ground rules about what type of culture you want to be when you want to grow up
0: think London will have some uh, challenges to ch- change too, um, especially with the city environment, but uh, it is starting to change. You do feel a different vibe when you go to Tech City and the Hub and just the idea sharing that's starting to emerge.
1: Yeah, but I would say even looking at what Mayor Michael Bloomberg is doing in New York, which they call themselves Silicon Alley, they, they think they're going to be bigger and better than Silicon Valley. I suspect there. But still, Google has the predominant focus. They have the predominant sort of um, dictation of what New York is going to look like because they have such an extraordinary presence there and they're really helping Roosevelt Island grow into sort of this mini entrepreneurial ecosystem. And then the third question I'm not.
0: I've taken it as a. If en- enterprising businessmen going to Silicon Valley, what would they expect?
1: Uh, in terms of raising money or.
2: Uh, I mean, sorry, uh, my question is, is, well, I mean, if you don't think it will help, uh, you can leave that question. You can leave that question. My question, again, if you want to hear it, if you want to, what you call, really tackle this, I was simply asking that City of London also prides itself in in enterprise, in supporting enterprise. Um, But what are the salient differences between enterprise promotion in City of London and in Silicon Valley.
1: Well, I mean, enterprise is one thing. I, I was in Washington, D.C., and they're trying to build this hub between Washington and Baltimore, which is approximately 45 miles. not sure I can calculate kilometers at the moment. But, uh, you know, and they're really focusing on cybersecurity and what I tell them is you've got to diversify because Washington was an area started really by America Online, mostly in the Virginia area, that did have this thriving tech community that died because they never really diversified and um, kind of continued to cultivate these, you know, culture that they wanted to be. And so it really did die out. Um, so in terms of enterprise you know, I'm not sure I'm answering the question.
0: And I, think in, I think in terms of diversifying as well, it's a case of do you find as well as businesses, individuals as well need a number of initiatives that they need to be exploring, because depending on which one's going to kick, which one's going to kick off, which one, how quickly they need to pivot. Um, Yes, yes
1: and yes. (laughs) So, you know, most venture capitalists will look at it as sort of a a batting average. You know, every one out of ten companies they hope will hit big, you know, and then three will do okay, and generally six will absolutely fail. Um, And I think, you know, that there's always that mindset of having a diversified portfolio, just as you would make a diversified investment, and recognize that no one quite knows what that technology will be. And, of course, we're living in such, particularly in Silicon Valley right now, such exponential times that it's very much thought of, if you think of the market today and then go out and do R&D around it, by the time you commercialize what that particular product or technology is, chances are it's going to be obsolete. So you have to get very creative when it, with regards to whether it's pivoting, if something's not working you may want to consider moving in a dir- different direction, or you may want to partner with a company instead of creating all that R&D and you know proprietary technology with in the house as well. You really have to move at a much much quicker pace within Silicon Valley.
0: I mean, applying. I mean, looking at that uh, when we're at Virgin, uh, it's a case of the the, the portfolio is 450 companies within the portfolio, and the essence was. Doing things that can you know, champion the customer, doing things that 's fun and being innovative without technology, but sticking to those values and those fundamental factors meant you could constantly attack a new industry or a new segment with those principles and, and see what you can disrupt and what
1: was the success rate out of four hundred and fifty companies
0: well, well yeah it 's a very low success rate and yeah. uh, we 've noticed over the last five years when we were there it was very focused on travel on uh, aviation. On finance and health now. So it's constantly making sure it's what's the next sector, and within that, trying to make that one business work.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Rather than
0: having Virgin Brides and Virgin Spas and all sorts of things. OK, so we going for the next round of, of three. It's one over here.
3: Hello, Jan Toremski
0: from Krakow University from Poland. Uh, I wanted to relate to one of the most burning issues um, that, that emerged in the last days, which is spying and surveillance conducted mm-hmm. by governments in possible cooperation with big companies from Silicon Valley. And my question is very simple. It's actually about your opinion. Is this threat real, or is it exaggerated? Should we be seriously concerned about sharing our personal data with such companies as, as Google, Facebook, and so on, or is it just sort of a medial panic? It's just a question about your opinion. Thank you very much.
4: Thank you. That's back.
3: Um, Hi, my name is Damini. Um, I studied HR, HR management here as a BSc and now I work here in the HR department as a project coordinator. Um, And my question is actually to do with HR management and strategic HR management. Um, When people talk about um, sort of Silicon Valley and why it's a success, often the things they talk about are maximising its people and um, kind of organisational culture. Um, But when HR comes into it, it's usually talked about in terms of um, hiring people um, rather than kind of from a strategic view. And I was wondering, do you feel like HR has a real role in sort of strategically driving these things sort of in organisations, not in tech organisations, but organisations over here, um, such as in the finance industry and that sort of thing? And have you seen that happening in Silicon Valley? Is that very much driven by management or the people who run the money? Thanks: Thank you
0: and uh, gentlemen in picture
5: if like. Hi, Robert Harris I'm an economics teacher. Uh, you were talking about Marissa Mayer in glowing terms. How did you what were your thoughts when about the news that she said that everyone had to work from the office and not work from home, having just converted the office next door to hers into a crash for her child?
1: I've gotten that question every single place I've gone.. <laughs> um, So, personal information, I think it's a huge, huge problem. And that's where Washington, D.C., they feel like they can invest in cybersecurity. And, uh, yeah, I don't know the future. I mean, because it's, you know, it's an enormous um, challenge that I think we're not, you know, I'd love to be inside Symantec, one of our big companies that that really focus on that. but it's, you know, I, I'll give you my own example. Somebody, I don't ever use my debit card to get money um, except at my own personal bank. And somehow somebody got a hold of my debit card, you know, and it, it just in South Africa. So all these charges were coming through on my bank account and I'm hyper careful about this stuff. So I think we're all going to be impacted. and. You know, a lot of companies, I mean, Google and and lots of companies will hire these professional hackers because I think we've got to figure out how to better protect our security. The flip side is from the government side, you know, they're convinced that they've been able, this is not so much on personal um, information, but they're, you know, they're absolutely convinced that they've thread off some terrorism threats as well. So, you know, it it's hard to say what that right balance is, but I think it's a discussion that we're all going to have to face just from a public policy standpoint as well. What that inform- you know, what that, that right balance is. To the question on the HR component, I think there's nothing greater more important right now than what's going on in HR. Because again, if you focus on your people, you know, there there's in business now, you know there's there's the tangibles, your products, your technology, your IP, you know anything around intellectual property that has value. But but some people believe um, that there's nothing greater than the intangibles at this point. You know we've all lost personal touch. We've lost customer service. I mean there is no more customer service. It, it really is about let me teach you how to do your own customer service uh, through the use of technology. And again, we're talking about massive shifts in jobs. You know, lots of jobs in manufacturing and other areas um, that were once, you know, maybe happening overseas from the U.S. perspective, but now are completely eradicated and gone because because of technology. And so, you know, we've got to recognize that people and the HR component is is our greatest value. It's the greatest difference that is going to make you know, in my opinion, the difference between success and failure overall. And, um, you know, the opportunity to be creative and better supporting people, you know, as I've just shared, uh, there's no greater time to take that risk right now.
0: Another question I mean, organization. It's with, I guess, being an, wanting to be an entrepreneur but maybe needing to be an intrapreneur until you get there. And I guess that being a big trend of of graduates and students looking to get into organisations to get an entrepreneurial, world, to ultimately want to do their own gig. How, how is that embraced? Do, do you find that supported? And companies support individuals doing, pursuing their own ventures on the side, maybe from five to nine. Yeah,
1: absolutely. I think that's expected. I mean, you know, YouTube was such an interesting story, and I, and I write about it in the book because it was really just a, a side project for those guys, and you know, they just decided. We're working at PayPal during the day, and we'll, you know, figure out what to do at night. And, and originally, YouTube was supposed to be about a dating site, and they plastered posters and, and all sorts of flyers around Stanford's campus, and they didn't get any traction. And then they realized that, you know, there was this need for video sharing in a much more efficient way. Well, they didn't take in capital until after they had been doing this side business for a year. And then a year after that, they were acquired by Google for $1.6 billion in stock and cash. Uh, so it's not a bad little story. So, yeah, no, it, you know, Silicon Valley is not necessarily about you being the entrepreneur. You may have an idea that you want to pursue at some point, but you may be better off investing in somebody else's idea to learn management and mitigate risk or mitigate failure, um, but recognize that at some point you're going to pursue what you want to pursue down the road. And then to the question on Marissa Mayer, my uh, candid response is, as she continues to do these acquisitions, is Yahoo's got to figure out what kind of company it wants to be over the next three to five years. And so there is a time where people have to join together, and they've got to sit side by side, and they've got to have dialogue, and they've got to have... um, brainstorming and they've got to have you know just all sorts of activities that bring that creativity back that will hopefully lead to innovation you know it's clearly lost market share it still has a lot of cash but google and with the attempt of microsoft with bing um, have you know far exceeded the market share that i think anybody anticipated Yahoo's got to do a little bit of innovation itself and potentially pivot. It still has, you know, a large market share in the advertising world, um, but it's, it's just got to figure out what that next generation of Yahoo is going to be. So I think it was wise on her part to bring people back together.
0: And do, do you think companies are struggling jumping from Web 2.0 to the mobile platform or they have to rely on acquisition because the entrepreneurial innovation is, is starting to stifle within?
1: You know, I, I mean, there, there's that, and the tablet industry, obviously, is enormous. But everybody thought that the PC industry was just going to go away so quickly, and it hasn't. And, and we, now we have all these different generations of technology users. Um, I mean, it is clearly going in that direction, but it's still going to be some time that it catches up. Um, and then it's going to be, you know, what's after that? What's after the tablet? What's after the, the you know, the iPhone? I mean, there's, there's a lot of talk in Silicon Valley whether Apple is going to have that next generation of what that new, new thing is. Um, but, you know, at the same time, I mean, we've, we've got to recognize how much technology and decide for ourselves exactly where it rests. How much technology do we need in our lives? Um, And, you know, there's individuals who think biotech is going to be bigger than the Internet, and 3D printing, and there's, you know, there's a lot of diversity out there in terms of where we're heading in technology um, that I think we could do, you know, benefit by having less focus on Web 2.0 or mobile, because all those players are in there, and move on to, to diversify and to continue to diversify our economy.
0: in the orange,
5: uh, I think we'll take some from top as well. Uh, hi, uh, Paul Jeffrey, Sloan Fellow, London Business School. Um, I was interested in your comments about Stanford and its origins and the scientific focus of Stanford that you mentioned. Now, that strikes me as hardly an original focus. Even in North America, both MIT and Caltech, to name but two institutions, have a heavily scientific focus. And obviously not far from where I stand or where most of us sit is Imperial College London, which obviously has a very heavy scientific focus. So making an assumptive leap, presumably what's different about Stanford is the way in which it reaches out to its community, which is the second part of what you said in terms of the origin that was different. So if you go into into the entrails of how Stanford reaches out to the community, what is it that they specifically do that is different to Caltech, that is different to MIT, and prospectively is different to what the likes of Imperial College are doing.
0: is uh, a table from the top actually. While we waiting for that.
4: Uh,
0: oh, yeah, go. For
4: it. Um, hi, my name is Julian. Um, I was wondering, you were talking a lot
6: about Google and their work environment and how everybody was sharing their. And um, on the idea of transplanting that internationally available everywhere locally,
4: um, what are your thoughts on how to hedge against the risk of corporate espionage and um, how, to, how to safeguard intellectual property? If we look especially on how quickly technologies and ideas are being copied and replicated, um, you know, being on a trade fair one day in Geneva and then being, you know, a week later mass-produced in China, how can we deal with that?
1: Yeah, great question.
4: Hi there. Um, can I ask, what would your advice be to somebody who's looking to start an international business uh, nowadays in the context of having uh, an easy way of connecting with people in different countries through social media things like Facebook and platforms like that, uh, balancing that against the importance of having human contact with people, would you advise young entrepreneurs to um, not use social media for that? Or would you say, yeah, you should use social media and you shouldn't bother with the time and expense and risk of of traveling to meet face-to-face or or probably somewhere in between? But some advice on that would be great. Thank you.
1: Excellent. So to the point, here's what Stanford does, and, I, and again, I write about it in the book. A student has an idea, and the student talks to his or her advisor, and that advisor may or may not be in a position to help that person. But what that advisor will do is pick up the phone and call five other people and say, I've got this really smart, you know, everybody's smart at Stanford. And what happens is the commercialization starts right there, and I write about the fact that Google, Larry Page, had no interest in turning Google into a business. It was really just trying to get a license, a licensing deal with the existing um, search engines at the time, and nobody was interested. So what he did was he went to the licensing department. Now, Stanford will claim that they think they have the best licensing department in the world. And you know whether that's true, I don't know. But here's a kid getting his PhD who wants to file IP around this. And having someone from the licensing department set up meetings with, what was it, AltaVista, and I forget all those original search engines. They went around and met with the five or six existing search engines to try to sell this license. And it it didn't take. So what happened was a professor in the process heard about what Larry Page was doing, which was a very unique algorithm in search, and decided to invest in them. And then Stanford ended up taking a substantial, well, not a substantial, but a, a percentage that ended up yielding $336 million when Google went public. And so the differences, again, you know, to my comment earlier, nobody cares in Silicon Valley, you know, your age, your gender, your race, anything. It's how smart are you? How capable are you? I'm investing in you and not necessarily the idea. The idea could be fantastic, but there's a a great recognition that you may need to pivot along the way and really have that uh, energy and passion to be able to carry through some sort of entrepreneurial venture. You know, they'll also pay for you to do research as a freshman. So if you're in a particular science discipline and you decided the summer after your freshman year, they'll pay you $5,000 over the summer to conduct research. I mean, what other university does that? Maybe, maybe you know, I don't know of any U.S. you know research institution because they're so guarded and they're so protected and they're so into the hierarchy of the tenure of the professorship that there could not possibly any be value in what a student brings to the table. Well, there's a very different mindset. You've got, you know, I, I don't know if anybody's been to Silicon Valley, but Silicon Valley is also surrounded by Sand Hill Road, where all the venture capital, there's more than a venture capital, uh, excuse me, more than a hundred venture capital firms there. So that's on one side of Stanford. These venture capitalists will just spend time on campus and say, "Tell me who's smart. Let me talk to my professor friends." Many of the venture capitalists are adjuncts, you know, at, at the School of Engineering or School of any of the sciences, and so there's that constant connectivity to the community. It's it's it goes both ways. So those venture capitalists are looking for those next generation of entrepreneurs, and. Those professors and that faculty is having direct correlation through the consulting of companies and industry. No, not not to my knowledge. Whether that happens under the table, but the, the if the licensing department is involved, then they will take a percentage of equity. You know, and they've only had a couple of big hits, but it's been that long tail, too, of, you know, smaller payoffs that have uh, have occurred through licensing of research or or technologies. On the IP question, that's a huge problem um, because a lot of people think there should be some sort of international, global governing body for IP. I write about intellectual property in a firm called RPX, which is out of San Francisco, which is almost more of an IP aggregator overall. Um, It's an enormous issue, you know, and and some people can make the claim that, look, some of the companies, eBay, for example, kind of copied a company out of China as well. Uh, but there is no governing, global governing body around IP. And there's not even a common language, which is, you know, there's not any a, a consistent lexicon. Who takes that on? I don't know. But I know that's got to be the conversation, the dialogue, um, because it's, you know, what I wrote a piece in the Wall Street Journal just talking about what is going on around these patent aggregators and, and people just, these patent trolls, stealing patents, you know, and it's, it's just an enormous issue um, and it, it reached our Congress, you know, how to resolve that because Cisco, I can't remember what the number was, but it was roughly they spent $59 million defending their patents last year. That was $59 million that could have gone towards R&D or acquisition or something else for that matter. So that, that's not an issue that's solvable in the next foreseeable future. And then the, the final question was on international business and uh, social media. And, and you may have some good advice here as well, too. Um, <clears throat> well, you, you partnered with a... or potentially are in discussions with... Yeah,
0: so we... we well, ours is all about networking. So my, my route to market was a case of um, learning from an entrepreneurial route within Virgin, learning how business is done, and uh, really somebody else's brand and funded by another area to, to, to learn the risks of uh, the early stages of startups and it, you know, we had the Virgin brand and it opened up the gate to so many companies in the tech, telco and retailers and, and you're building up a book. Basically you're building up your network of, of partners that you can potentially work with in the future and building up that credibility when you move on, when you do look, find that, that vehicle or that idea that you want to invest in or that you want to champion, it's, it's really the, the value of that network is, is, is tremendous. And people have respected you for, for getting to certain positions um, in previous dialogues, and, and you're playing on that, and you're constantly evolving them, you're constantly keeping your network fresh. So social media, LinkedIn, it's, it's invaluable as um, connect, reconnecting back and, and saves you the marketing budget of... Uh, of, of creating the brand from scratch. So you're always building your own brand and you're always building your network. So international business is, is, is key to that. And, uh, yeah, and I, and I
1: would just add, you know, again, living in these exponential times where things are moving so quickly, it's better to outsource or partner with an international partner. And I was just explaining earlier, even in the medical device space or the drug R&D space, Um, A lot of pharmaceutical companies are bypassing getting approval process with the FDA. It used to be a a certain track you could take and almost be guaranteed FDA approval based on your trials, the success of your trials. Well, now, just because of politics in our country, um, a lot of these companies are actually trying to go through the approval process outside of the U.S., commercializing their having enough trial and uh, market adoption, and then coming back to the U.S. And so, you know, I've been in these discussions with a lot of venture capitalists who kind of specialize in this area. Everybody's thinking about things differently now because it's just business just looks so different. And it is so tough to predict what is going to happen, so you have to figure out the best way to mitigate the most risk that you possibly can.
0: I think for, for startups that are wanting to start in this day and age, it, it's a case of there's a lot of software, there's a lot of technology being created and, and a tremendous amount of funding going into it, but it's a case of what's the application? What's that changing in industry? What's that changing for either consumers, small businesses, or enterprises? And I think that's where you can start getting in in terms of creating that service proposition, using the technology, using the people, and, and mitigating the risk in that way. I think that's what a lot of companies are looking uh, that they can't create straight away, they can't create that new route to market. And that's where we're finding a lot of companies are partnering with, with people on this side of the pond in Europe that can access a new market for them Absolutely. at a very low cost.
1: Yeah, and a much quicker way without it. Uh, this man has had his hand up. Thank yeah. Uh,
6: thank you. My name is Jose Rockeford, and um, uh, well, I'm part of a new startup on healthcare. And it's mobile software for healthcare, hospitals, care homes here in the UK. Um, well, actually, we are planning to go for, for a week to Silicon Valley with uh, Invest Ireland uh, because we are an Irish uh, startup. And uh, my, my question mainly is um, were, I mean, I know San Francisco is more like small startups, and uh, maybe there's more angel investing there than maybe Silicon Valley, which is focusing. Oh, well, there's a lot of support for, like, Round Bs and, uh, like, startups that are medium or big instead of small ones that actually, you know, want, want to get uh, with them, like, uh, one, an angel investor or someone for the city stage. So what is, what is your recommendation in terms of separating uh, San Francisco, Silicon Valley, and all, all the different areas there?
1: Yeah, you're still not... You know, San Francisco and, and Silicon Valley are just, depending on what parts you're going, you know, is, is an hour apart at most. Um, you know, you still have different stage investors, and even the venture capital model is is really getting disruptive right now because there's been so much criticism on they haven't been returning, they haven't been beating the public markets, um, whereas private equity, on the other hand, has, has been doing fairly well. And so, you know, they're looking at all sorts of unique models now, whether they create more of this super angel environment, you know, those, those investors that will invest more than a million dollars in the early stage or, or Series A startup. Um, but, you know, you're never going to do better anywhere in the U.S. than Silicon Valley, the San Francisco, the, the two areas. Uh, you know, the, just the predominance of firms that are available, that specialize in all sorts of diverse industries, um, you know, it really does have the competitive advantage of being there. And what
6: do you recommend? Like, do you recommend, like, tech uh, hubs or places like, uh, like meetups in order like, uh, to connect with like, know, the, the angel,
1: uh, community? Or... Well, the, the other... The way of doing things is looking into some of the incubators as well, because there's oftentimes the funding that comes along with that. So Y Combinator, 500 startups. Um, Those are really great processes to go through, because that's a really quick way to enter into the the marketplace as well. And Ordreason Horowitz, one of our more successful venture capital firms, now has this partnership with Y Combinator and there's almost guaranteed funding if you're accepted into Y Combinator Um, and they, they move it quick. You know, they want that product commercialized within three months. So, you know, it's just like anywhere else, you have to kind of build those relationships and you also if, you know, you're in the market for legal advice, sometimes those lawyers can really, really help make some introductions and there's all sorts of angel groups also in the area. Um, Ron Kaufman is our our biggest angel, Silicon Valley angels. And, uh, you know, he's just, they say he has a hard time saying no, you know.
0: Do you think uh, European startups looking to create a presence, do you think it will be, they will have more of a unique advantage going to Silicon Valley because they're giving access to another market? Or do you think the space is less crowded in Europe for them to... Look at um, the campuses here or incubator programs here to, to get a more of a initial startup or uh, I
1: well I mean I think the interesting thing, you know, we, we Silicon Valley definitely funds like Israel. There's a lot of Israeli companies being funded out of Silicon Valley. You still need localization in your innovation. You know, I talk about it it doesn't have to be this grandiose new invention. Sometimes it's just improving upon local processes. So, you know, the, the beautiful thing about Silicon Valley is it's so diverse. Um, so, you know, if you're French, you can find that French community. If you're Indian, it, I mean, it, it, there's just an enormous support system based on your interest and your, you know, geographic background and your ethnic background. I mean, Thai, uh, which I write about in the book, the Indus entrepreneur really kind of coalesced because back in the 70s, to be an Indian, you know, engineer during that time was very, very difficult to raise capital. So they came together just as a way to not only help entrepreneurs raise capital, but, but really strategize on strategic partnerships. And they've had enormous success, um, so much so that they don't just focus on Indian entrepreneurs anymore. Anybody can be a part of Thai.
0: Think we've got time for one more round of the 3 questions. Okay.
5: one in the red shirt. Nathan McClellan, I teach economics. So you mentioned that schools are having trouble adjusting to the twenty-first century and, and getting kids ready for what's coming with technology. So I was wondering if you had any ideas um, for how to integrate idea-sharing, collaboration, that sort of thing, into the education system, maybe taking some ideas from Silicon Valley and engineering it into education.
1: Although I never claimed we had a great education system in Silicon Valley. but Can we just get the
0: mic open? Sorry.
3: Hi. Right. Uh, the British government just announced that computing is going to be part of the national curriculum. I'd like you to, to, to make a comment, not, not about the political decision itself, but I mean the, the, the role the education should play in this yeah. 21st century okay. economy.
5: Uh, hi there. I'm Alex Finimore. I'm a product manager in Shoreditch. Uh I was going to ask how uh, the, what the effect of all the wealth generated in the valley is going to have, uh, because it's now obviously an attractive place to go, but an expensive place. So kids can't start things in their garages because they can't afford to. Or they have to live in their garages.
1: Right, <laughs> or their cars. Yeah. Do you want to stop there, or did you want to take one more? Yeah, I'll just take okay.
0: That. okay.
6: Okay, uh, I'm Islam, I'm from uh, Egypt, and I was asking, you have referred to the experience of America online in Virginia, and you, you mentioned the importance of creating a culture, culture of innovation. So can you speak something about how to uh, invent a culture of uh, innovation?
1: Absolutely. Uh- On the education front, um, first of all, California ranks 48th in the United States for education uh, in terms of per-people spending, Um, and it's uh, quite pathetic what the schools offer living right in Silicon Valley, and even my own children, I'm having to work with the the head of the school to really get them to think about, uh, you know, it's one thing, and again, I don't want to speak to what goes on in the UK, but we're, we're still stuck in this manner that you take biology, and then you take chemistry, and then maybe you get to physics within high school. This, this seemingly uh, sequential order of sciences. The problem is, science is so much more diverse than that. That if a child takes chemistry and is told by one professor or one teacher that he or she is really bad at it, it could potentially turn them off from science altogether and so I spent a lot of time at Singularity University and Singularity University is on the campus of Moffat Field and they're looking at science and technology five to ten years out and um, <clears throat> there's a belief that if you want to teach your child a language let them learn the language of the computer because that's really where you know our children it, it will be you know indoctrinated and in part of their DNA um, so it's, it's a real challenge to be able to, I, I'm not sure Silicon Valley has the answer on that front, but there are schools that are private um, that look at how you br- bring design thinking into the curriculum overall. How do you do, I mean, doing robotics is one thing, or artificial intelligence, but how do you look at math, humanities, social studies, uh, some of the things are fundamental and basics that we all need to know, but that design thinking and creativity and looking at how to do things differently is more important than anything else. There's sort of this theory that we all dissected frogs, but really the frog should come dissected and then you figure out how to put it back together. So, you know, I, I, we're not doing a good job in the U.S. as far as I'm concerned on, on K-12 through 12 education. And then... Um, Computing, I I think that's brilliant, you know, because that that is the – it's not even the future, it's the here and now. And we continue to have a shortage of engineers, and our HB1 visas is still a big, big issue for us. So part of the problem is, um, you know, we're having a massive shift in the economy, but yet the education is not either giving kids, particularly girls, the exposure – to look at STEM subjects, science, technology, engineering, and math. Um, and so, you know, I think it's, it's much tougher on parents these days to be mindful to try to give their kids that exposure.
0: If you take uh, an institute like the LSC as well, which focuses on social sciences, I mean, there's a question on, if it doesn't have a technology arm or a science arm, can it not be as entrepreneurial? And I think one of the questions they're looking at is, well, we're surrounded by other universities that are scientifically focused, like the Imperials, University College of London, et cetera. So the question is, how can we be more collaborative and, and stem off each other to really leverage our strengths? And, and that's, I think, one of the things, as you mentioned, Silicon Valley does so well. How can we bring that ethos to an area which, um, to a campus lifestyle which uh, you need to bring, bring together the right teams to be able to um, take your ideas to the next level? So
1: yeah, and, you know, just as partnerships on the international side, partnerships have to happen, public-private partnerships as well. You know, the education community has got to be talking to the business community. The higher ed has got to be talking to K through 12. And, you know, it takes effort. And, again, it's really thinking outside of the box in terms of not continuing to do things that you've done over the last 50 years. But what is the next 50 years going to look like as well? And then there was the question about wealth generation. Um, There was an article in The Economist probably sometime a year ago that blamed the lack of housing and the cost of housing in Silicon Valley on the entire economy of the world because they felt if more people could work in Silicon Valley, the economy would be in much better shape. It's a huge issue. Um, There's lots of focus on, you know, the disparity in wealth. And the only thing I can say, which is very kind of an anomaly that I've seen in the United States, is with this wealth accumulation, nobody sort of opts out. Nobody's sailing around the world. Um, you know, people continuously give back, whether it's for their sense of feeling valid in their own lives or just the recognition that somebody else helped them and they need to give back. So, Tim Draper, a third generation venture capitalist who clearly never needs to work again, has started Draper University for entrepreneurs. Because he really feels that even our higher ed you know, is not doing a great job in terms of teaching entrepreneurship. I don't know anybody who has made a fortune. Cheryl Sandberg, she's continuing to work and she's starting you know, a new platform for, for women and really trying to get them pulled back into the workforce. I don't know anybody who has made a tremendous amount of money who has just walked away. So, um, and then on the culture of innovation, how you create that or? Um, you know a lot of people feel that you're not your own island you, you can't just think so the, the big trend right now is innovation pull and innovation push and one is you're figuring out what innovation looks like internally within your own organization but then you're crowdsourcing and reaching out to your clients your customer base for their input as well And most of the design thinkers will tell you that who does innovation both, or who does it the best, is is by doing both. Um, Because you can no longer be insular in your thinking because, again, things are moving at such an exponential pace. How do you know what your clients or your customers need? And so, for example, IDEO worked with an airline called JetBlue. You know, what is going to be that unique distinct advantage of this airline. Why would you want to fly JetBlue over any other airline in the U.S.? And so they really just kind of observed, what. how do we make it easier? They went to the airport. They went to San Francisco International and just kind of observed, what was it? Rather than trying to get these yes and no responses, what was it that was going to make this experience better for you? And so you go through this process of ideation, which is just this entire process of getting to a place where you prototype, and then you test out that prototype, and then you alter it again, and you have a new prototype, and, you know, it's just that serious. But so it's, it's got to be this collaborative dialogue that is just continuous within your team, but also reaching outside and hearing what the customer feedback is we
0: have time for more? Um, yeah, I think we've got time for one more round. Okay. Lady there in the right top.
7: Hello. Um, I'm Audrey. I just had a question regarding this uh, innovation culture we're speaking about. I'm working in an SME of 15 people and uh, it's uh, basically sitting down from 9 to 5 and sometimes, as you said, I can be done with what I had to do uh, before five and be like, I would like to do more, but I'm not, uh, you know, uh, straightened or pushed enough. So how, but I feel that um, the the managers are also afraid due to financial pressures, due to to the economic crisis, that you don't mention so much. So how can you deal with uh, this uh, creativity in, uh, in this economic environment which is very hard and which feared, uh, which is feared by the, the corporate management uh, to, to, to think outside the box because we don't see the future very well so they may be afraid to, to take any initiatives to push their employees and so finally fin- maybe finally it's a vicious circle but uh, you know, how, how can you um, yeah, make things differently in this specific environment? Thank you. over there in the blue. Um, Hi, I'm Catherine. I'm a software engineer. So my question is, um, today with companies like Facebook and Google, it's hard to imagine a life without them. They're so integrated into everything we do, our phones, search, social. Um, Is there anything that you think could lead to the downfall of these companies? because it doesn't seem possible that they could be around forever, but at the same time, it seems hard to imagine a life without them.
4: Hi,
0: I'm Jeff. Uh, I'm an alumni. I now work in the city. Um, You mentioned a few words, and one was failure, one was risk. Can you talk about the culture mentality ethos in terms of failure in Silicon Valley, how it's viewed, and in terms of risk, I mean, in terms of risk tolerance, risk attitude, risk sharing. And I'll ask a second part question, which is, can you comment on immigration reform in the US?
1: I, I'm sorry, I'm what? Immigration reform. Oh, yeah, I, I think. <laughs> uh, on the creativity, it's, you know, it's really simple. Maybe we need new <coughs> managers. You know, so Peter Thiel, who was, uh, PayPal, and then really is, is just a venture capitalist and, and invests in some really odd things, but is also doing this Teal Fellowship now and trying to encourage the brightest kids, and I think it's just in the U.S., to opt out of college, because college, why wait for them for four years if they're just brilliant and we, we could really use their minds? Um, but he makes his staff go hiking on, on certain days, you know, get out into San Francisco and hike or go to a museum, just to kind of look at things differently, we've got to get out of this mindset that productivity and creativity is based on a box and a cubicle from 9 to 5. And so that's where he, the, the gentleman left, but that's where that HR thinking, I think, on human resources is so imperative today. Um, but, you know, I do understand being entrenched in a sort of a very traditional culture because I came out of that, that makes it incredibly difficult. But it has to start somewhere. Someone's got to put the ground rules down and say, you know, and it's obviously easier to do this with money than not. You know, if, you, if you've raised capital or within a corporation, if there is a lot of corporate profitability that's being held, you know, again, there's no greater time to take that risk to try to do things. So, you know, I consult to one of the largest corporations in the world and Uh, You know, that's exactly what they're trying to figure out. How do you create more flat management? How do you, you know, should it require 20 signatures to have a $2,000 purchase order? No, it shouldn't. It's got to be based on trust and just overall performance and allowing people to have the freedom without being watched over. I mean, managers in Silicon Valley are really your kind of cheerleaders, you know, rather than your bosses, per se. They're there to support you in doing what you want to do. And managers got to hire people smart enough to know what they're doing. And that manager is really just to kind of support that individual. So I don't know if that answers your question too. To lots of museums to go to. You know, lots of just, just really kind of taking people out of the office to give uh, you know, them a, a different opportunity and a different vantage point.
0: And I think also, with, with the technology innovation around, let's say, to say, software as a service, I think there is such a fear within organizations that it's going to be big capital outlays, big investment costs to do anything different. I think now the game's starting to change. It can be a lot more flexible and nimble and, and go out and hunt for those new, unique solutions, champion them internally and actually say, well, it's not so much about uh, a big infrastructure change. And you know, we can actually start doing test pilots and test cases to show the difference, because it's all about, it's all evidence-based, and if you can start showing glimmers of of change, then you can actually get them on side and actually, well, learn from, from, you know, how it's done in Silicon Valley and say, well, we can actually start enacting change.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And then on the adoption question... So, again, I write on this process that uh, adoption of technology is interesting because, you know, first you're at a a place that you can't imagine it being in your life. You know, you absolutely resist it. And, um, you know, I will disclose that I just got a smartphone, you know, not too long ago. Um, But you, you go through this continuum of resistance to can't imagine living without it. In the case of Google, uh, they are continuing to acquire and doing R&D internally. uh, That would surprise people. That is not necessarily public knowledge. They will continue to evolve. And they will also always think of themselves as that entrepreneurial existence. And they will break things down if they get too corporate in that response. So if if you continue to think of yourself in the entrepreneurial roots, you'll continue to evolve and recognize when you are becoming too kind of traditional and corporate in that respect but there you know there there will be definitely be something else after Facebook and Twitter and and you know it'll be really interesting to see with this younger generation if they get burnt out i mean there'll be some other method of communicate you know we went from email or actually before email, instant messaging, email, texting, Facebook, Twitter, it'll definitely be something else soon, I think. And then on the uh, the failure, your risk, and immigration. So, you know, Silicon Valley likes to talk a lot about that it just is okay failing, that that's part of the experience. And I, I, I think that's true to some degree, but I don't think any angel investor – wants to go into an investment knowing that they're going to lose, you know, X amount of millions of dollars. But it it is based on the people. Most venture capitalists will tell you they're investing in the people and not the idea. So if they feel that that person has sustainability and is nimble and is not afraid to pivot if need be, um, the hope is at some point they'll find some degree of success overall. Uh, but it is all about risk-taking. There's no question about that. There's a great deal of comfort in taking risks. The question is, or the challenge is now, at what point, you know, where is that nexus between taking risk and having some potential for that return on investment? And I think that's the lens that people are really um, consumed with in Silicon Valley. And also, you know, to your earlier point, value creation rather than this just-get-rich-quick scenario. Amazon, which is not in Silicon Valley, but uh, up in the Seattle area, you know, Jeff Bezos is is just famous for taking risks and recognizing that he's going to take some hits, but it's all about value creation. The Kindle is a perfect example. It's not a moneymaker for them right now. But they recognize, you know, where the industry is heading. Um, and... You know, know that Amazon is the process. Well, they're not. They're, they're becoming a bank as well, and many of our big banks are terrified that they will be a formal bank. And you know, they basically, when someone applies to Amazon, they will use their their sellers, their e-commerce clients, who they Amazon knows in real time exactly how that particular seller is doing at any given minute, at any given hour, at any given day. So to apply for a loan from Amazon, you have to go through six questions. Well, that's quite different from a traditional bank or going through due diligence and trying to get to a term sheet with a venture capitalist. Um, So it's, you know, there is definitely a much greater comfort level in terms of taking risk and failure than anywhere else I've seen. HB1 visas, immigration. Yeah, it's, it's, um, I don't know. You know, there was a lot of talk in Congress six months ago, and it hasn't been resolved at this point. We definitely need to stop educating people at Stanford and MIT or Harvard and then sending them back home.
0: So. On the risk point, um, you mentioned in your book that one of the traits in Silicon Valley is everybody goes around touting how many failures they've had, just as much as a success, and it's it's sort of um, the badge of honor. Yeah, the badge of honor exactly. So, do you feel venture capitalists won't really, don't really take you seriously until you've had a couple of failures under the belt, so you've learned from your mistakes, or how do they sort of gauge that? Do, or do you feel it's even critical for you to have, have learned from a couple of failures in your life?
1: You know, again, I, I think it's so much based on those uh, those. Human connections. So, I think that a venture capitalist needs to sort of sniff out, if you will, someone who's either gone through a lot of failures or maybe has learned earlier in some capacity how to mitigate risk because I think it's very much contingent on that personality of that person and what they can handle and what they know and what they don't know and how much they're comfortable in recognizing what they don't know and figuring out, you know, how to mitigate that situation the best they can. Are
0: we on time? I think? One more session? Yeah, okay, I think we've got time for a couple more questions, the final round. over here.
7: Bibi Klassen from IBM. Um, I've got a question for you with regard to... Um, I think it's very fascinating with the uh, Silicon Valley. And, but do you think that you could actually transform the concept and, uh, to, to the uh, virtual realm, actually? Could you do this in a virtual environment rather than actually physically in uh, Silicon Valley? Or is the secret ingredient, really, the face-to-face, the human touch, the personal um, relationships...
3: Thank
4: you. Uh, My name is Pierce and I don't belong to the corporate world. So my question really was whether you could personalize your commentary on Silicon Valley. When you talk about an entrepreneur, and I'm afraid, I'm sorry that I don't know exactly what you entrepreneur in, but perhaps you could explain how you develop your business and are there any lessons which might be applicable to anybody else who's thinking about it? And the second part, if you don't mind, is that uh, you talked about risk as well. And if I'm correct, the attitude in America to failure is different from that in the UK. Whereas it's acceptable to uh, acceptable in America to fail and start again, but in the UK this is not basically. There's stigma attached to it all. So could you comment on that as well, if it is true?
1: Sure, absolutely. Want to take one more, or you Uh, just? Okay. Okay. Um, so Kickstarter and these other crowdsourcing fundraising, act, I, I you know some people will say it's not going to change the game. I think it is going to change the game, but the magic of Silicon Valley, the secret sauce, is the the totality of the ecosystem. So it's this person picks up the phone to this service provider, that then goes to this service provider, that then gets to the investment banker, that then gets to the strategic partner, that then hopefully leads to that exit strategy overall. Um, But I'm hugely optimistic about what you can do through crowdsourcing. And, uh, you know, if anybody can figure that out, I mean, I know there's uh, New York Angels is really trying to connect their angel investors, and I think it's a couple hundred people at this point, to sort of the global entrepreneurial community. And there's no reason why relationships can't evolve, or at least start initially through the virtual world and then kinda of grow from there. Does that answer your question? Excellent. Um, failure in Europe, France is I think even worse maybe than here. It's it's death. I mean, if you're going, you know, France, I had interviewed a couple of entrepreneurs. You fail, you know, not only do you have a black mark, but your child has a black mark, your grandchildren. And it's, it's incredibly, Destructive in that regard. Um, I would say it's more accepted in Silicon Valley than anywhere else in the in the rest of the country. It, it's quite it, it's a distinction, you know. Again, that is is unique onto itself. I mean, failure is is an embarrassment. It absolutely is. And so, I, I'm not sure I understood your question in terms of, of risk versus failure and and what you were looking for specifically? But
4: was asking for really for a comparison and was the attitude in America different attitude. if you could if you failed, I mean that wasn't looked upon as being a stigma in any way. It was just, you know, part of the process. You could get up again and you do something different. And if with, you were successful, whereas it was here
1: Yeah, no, it's definitely better in Silicon Valley than it is anywhere else throughout the rest of the country. So it's it's uh, you know again, it, you'd rather be Mark Zuckerberg than the you know I mean Zanga is is a company Mark Pincus had to kind of put his head down and and bring in Don Matrick who who runs uh, who did who was president of Microsoft for the you know interactive enta- entertainment division. I mean there is a recognition sometimes that. You may have to build out an idea, but recognize you may be great the first year and a half, but then you've got to bring somebody in who can take that company to that next level. But Silicon Valley is filled, you know, filled of entrepreneurs who remain there the entire time. And sometimes that, you know, you've got to make that shift in recognizing that you need new management to have the greatest success that you potentially can have.
0: I think in terms of experiences of starting businesses and the advice, I think mit- the mitigating risks and partnerships is so critical. I think we don't all have access to capital or trying to get VC funding in Europe is, is a challenge. And, but what is open is the ability to partner. And I think if you can find the right partner and you, it's all about the people, people can connect within the teams, there's opportunities to, to share the risk uh, with broader organisations without capital. So strategic investment or strategic partnerships I think, critical for new startups that want to, to get uh, the yeah. opportunity in the marketplace. Absolutely. Excellent. Well, I want to thank you, Deborah, for your, for your time you. today. For thank you.
1: Thank you very us. much.